curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Are you missing Grant Smithies, albums from the class of 1978? Oh, I kind of am, but we're using his absence as a big fat kind of um, excuse, a clever way with the least effort to make sure that the Shipwreck Tales archive is full because a whole lot of Shipwreck Tales got lost overboard, uh, not to mix a metaphor, uh, in a transfer between one web format to another. So we've got The Wreck of the Alingamite, a harrowing story, as most of them are. That's tonight after 11 o'clock. Uh, after the commercial break, though, James Crute will take us through some more of the New Zealand International Film Festival. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. The film festival is well and truly underway. Uh, the greater part of the Auckland season done and now going throughout the rest of the country in Christchurch, Wellington and spreading around the country, if not entirely in parts. James Crute for more highlights not to miss. Yes, I finally, we finally got the uh, amazing film festival here now. It's been going for about a week. Um, it's been a lot of fun. What I've seen so far has certainly been an eclectic bunch, and there are a few that I know that even though Auckland Festival is finished up, that I know are coming back soon, mm. particularly in Auckland, um, and some that are well worth checking out. And I think we have to start with perhaps one of the nuttiest films, which has to be uh, Gaspar Noe's Climax. Ah. Now, for listeners that don't know, Gaspar Noe is a, I think he's Argentinian-born French director. Now, he's infamous in New Zealand for creating a film called Irreversible, which was uh, a bit like Memento. It was a story told backwards, I think in eight or nine-minute parts, but it was most uh, controversial for having a graphic scene which uh, attracted the Society for Promotion of Community Standards and all sorts of things, who didn't want it brought back after the film festival. They wanted it banned by the um, by the censor who refused to give in to their demands and screen at R18. I mean, it wasn't just about that. It was a very audacious piece of filmmaking. It had some it did have some disturbing moments in it, but it was crazy. And that's What was disturbing about it? Everyone's wondering now, James. Well, there's a graphic rape scene. Oh, but okay. It, it's kind of the uh, perspective and things like that. There's also a scene involving a fire extinguisher to the head, which which is equally disquieting. Oh, okay. But yes. But, um, so Climax is, is the latest one, and this is in some ways less provocative, and in others it's equally um, mad and... Um, you know, potentially uh, sense-abating. So it, it basically is the arc of a party told in different instalments. So you have the kind of build-up. It's a group of dancers who are celebrating the end of three days of hard, intense work, and they're having a kind of celebration party. Uh, they've made this, the... Um, choreographers made the sangria and everyone's having a good time and then things start to go a bit pear-shaped because somebody spiked the sangria ah with and of, acid it, 
Yeah, something akin to that. That's okay. for sure. No one's no one's completely sure. But you, but the camera starts acting in the same kind of freaked out way that the um, the various characters are as well. And strange things start happening. They start turning on one another. Everything just suddenly becomes this uh, very different, least fun place to be. Um, and it is told in kind of different instalments and chapters, uh, but you do get that feeling. You know, when you've, from from people's youths in particular, one of those parties where it goes, through, it's an all-nighter where it goes through this arc of different kind of states. Oh, yes. Exactly. And this is exactly that kind of thing. It really does. Break. I sat beside a guy at uh, the screening I went to the other night, and he, he said it gave him flashbacks from like 30 years ago. I've taken notes after such evenings just to make sure I remember everything that happened. There was well, that, I think and then like that Gaspino's happened. done the same thing. Um, but, yeah... But, of course, you know, people aren't thinking about what they're doing, particularly when they've had the sangria. Yeah. Um, and just ever-increasing bizarre things happen. But, I mean, this is not a film that's told in a, a, a linear narrative way either. The end credits are, like, right at the beginning. Then there's some more credits another way through. Then there's, like, the music credits elsewhere. Yeah. It's all backed by... Uh, a, you know, a changing soundtrack that reflects the moods. But isn't that like a party as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you stick someone with the turntable and they're, you know, trying to match what's going on with, you know, by, by providing something similar. Yeah, James is putting on Bob Dylan again. and Oh, no. Bob Dylan, the man who will sing at his concert but won't talk to you, he won't even acknowledge that you exist, no. according to the Aussies. Wanker. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, now, now um, you've done a tremendous job describing Climax because I talked with Ant Timpson about this. <laughs> he was hopeless. He would have got distracted. Absolutely hopeless. He says, oh, it's just amazing. It's a thing. You, you should see it. It's wild. It's amazing. It's vibe. <laughs> it's, and it gave me no idea. And the blurb? Um, no, you've done better than the blurb as well in the uh, in the I program. Think it is, look, I, I think it probably comes down to your personal experience of various things as well. Because, you know, and I don't have a lot of experience in, in certain things, but this kind of reminded me of how parties can go. Yeah. I guess maybe in the creative field as well. Maybe it's all my misspent youth and drama groups that sort of <laughs> came back to haunt me. Yeah. Oh, but no. Yeah. Fascinating. Excellent. Great. Okay, next. Let's let's move on to American Animals. Mm -hmm. Now, this was the opening night film here in Christchurch, and this is by the uh, director, Bart Layton, who created that film a few years ago called The Imposter, mm -hmm. which was this amazing tale and a bit of a blend of dramatisation and documentary about this, uh, I think it was a guy in his 20s who passed himself off as a, like a 13-year-old or a teenager or whatever. Mm. Um, and this is another true life story that blends that whole idea of the docudrama, so this recreated scenes with interviews with the actual protagonist. Uh -huh. um, and this is all based around uh, events in 2003 at the brilliantly named Transylvania University <laughs> in Kentucky. Yeah. I love how the Americans come up with names like that. <laughs> anyway, these guys were kind of, uh, I think they were actually split between two universities, but they were bored. And the thing about Transylvania University has a, it has this amazing collection of rare books and artworks. 
and they decided that a quick way of making a whole lot of money would be to steal them. Then they worked out they needed a, a fence. Then they worked out that in order for the fence to take it off them, they needed to get them appraised. So they had to A, steal the stuff, then get it to New York to get it appraised by an art dealer so they could then uh, uh, sell it to a guy in Amsterdam who was apparently very good at this sort of thing so they could get their hands on the $12 million. This, I guess like I, Tonya, is a classic case of people misremembering things, a heist that couldn't go more wrong because of the incompetency (laughs) and just pure entertainment for the audience because of the conflicting stories as well as the dramatic way that it's told and the inventive kind of way that it's told. So so in a lot of ways, it kind of reminded me of I, Tonya, but with the real people involved doing the direct-to-camera interviews rather than getting the characters as they or the actors as they did in Itonia. In the blurb, I do like the sentence, performed performed with piss, vinegar and some poignancy by a fractious quartet of bright young things. Yeah, and that is the real-life guys. <laughs> right. To say. There are some amazing moments. And I know, having seen The Imposter, I know that the director-writer, Bart Layton, has particular dramatic things that he does with his real-life people. You know, there are moments where he just has them sit there and reflect on the action that's just been on screen in the dramatised version. So you can see a little bit of the seams in how this is crafted. But that doesn't mean it's not quite a brilliant, terrible heist movie Mm, mm. (laughs) or a fascinating... Uh, look at, you know, one of those little-known cases. You know, small-town case attracted national publicity for a brief moment, probably barely made any news here, Mm. but it's just, you know, a fascinating tale of, well, I don't know, young hubris, perhaps, (laughs) that these guys thought they were going to get away with it. Nice. I and even, even as they were doing it, they kind of worked out that this was a bad idea. Not ah. necessarily what it was going to do for their careers, but just that it had been ill thought out. And there's also the question of whether all of them were actually thinking along the same lines. And and that, in fact, one of them could have been a fantasist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's quite brilliant. It leaves you with a number of questions as well as plenty of bizarro answers. Nice. You have time for another one at least. Yeah, look, uh, let's talk searching then, okay. because this is another fascinating way of telling a story. So it is a, it is a drama, but it's all told through computer screens. So everything you see is uh, as if you were looking at the computers of the main characters involved. So it's all about uh, John Cho's character, who's called David Kim, and he lost his wife to cancer, and now his teenage daughter has gone off to college, and all of a sudden she disappears, and he can't get a hold of her. So you see his FaceTime calls to her, you see all those kind of things. And so when when he can't sort of, uh, turn, you know, can't find her... And he realises that he doesn't have the contacts for any of her friends. He spies her laptop and sort of breaks into that. And you see him go through trying to get into her Facebook and then do all the... You know, you you see the little cheats of how you can get one password to get another password to get another password. Uh But then, you know, it's kind of you follow him as he's searching 
going through all her Facebook friends, trying to get details, and at the same time, there's a police detective who's on the case from a missing persons perspective, and their interaction and her work at the same time. It's it's very clever kind of thriller. It does eventually end up being you know a little bit predictable narrative for this kind of movie, but um, yeah, it was it was kind of fascinating way of telling it, and I guess it's you know, how someone would approach a missing persons case in this age. Yeah. And it's kind of like Gone Girl for 2018. Yeah. Clever way of telling the story. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. All righty. Uh, now, the Premier League. Yes. Um, this is starts this weekend, doesn't it? Arsenal Man City, Monday morning. Oh, what an opening ground game. Yeah. Heavens. A few World Cup stars there. Yes. No, uh, Mourinho's already thrown his toys out of the cot and they've barely kicked off. Uh, Everton suddenly bought a whole lot of players at last minute. Of course, the strange thing this season, transfer window's already closed. Oh, the stupid transfer window. Now, people who tune into this just for the uh, football talk, they'll know what we're talking about. But this transfer window, yeah, it closes. But then it opens again in January in the middle of the season. Well, but, but the weird thing is, traditionally, the transfer window has been the same throughout Europe. And it it was always the end of this month, not. Oh, so, right. But England decided this year that they wanted to close it before the tournament kicked off. But it now means that the uh, that uh, all the European teams can now, now go around cherry-picking players for the next three weeks, and the English teams can't do much about it. Uh, so expect Eden, ha- Eden Hazard to join uh, Tybalt Courtois at... Um, Real Madrid within the next three weeks. Uh, expect Paul Pogba to disappear off somewhere in a fit of peak with Jose Mourinho. Right. Um, you know, it's all kind of nuts. I believe you can still loan players in terms of the British stuff. And also, the, I think it only applies to the EPL, so the lower divisions where the likes of my daughter's beloved Aston Villa mm. reside. Mm. Um, they can still pick up players over the next few weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> it's just nuts. Oh, that so is appara- bizarre. Apparently there's a push for everybody to have to move slightly earlier, but we'll wait and see. Yeah, that is crazy. It's almost as crazy as the stupid idea of, why did they do this? Just to not hurt people's feelings? There's the Premier League, and then the second division got changed to Championship, and then the third division got changed to League One. <laughs> I know that was a long time ago, but it's just an obvious thing that, what, a little doodum's going to feel feel bad? Is it marketing? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, God. Yeah, the, uh, the, um, the lower leagues are still called great things, you know, sponsored by the Vauxhall, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'll bring this up with Max next. Max Cryer, um, football commentator, raconteur and wordsmith. Uh, Etymologist, I almost got him in the insect world there. Etymologist will be with us next. Uh, He's training at Leach. We're having a look at the word spring and bamboozle and winkle pickers as well. What a great array for Max today. Thank you very much, James Croop, for Cinema Review and a small football preview of the EPL. Cheers. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Max Cryer with his weekly dissertation on words, their origins and meanings, and directed in large part uh, by your questions. If you want to ask Max anything on the subject, uh, feel free. Just go to... What? I like the word oration. 
Did, Did you I just say oration? Dissertation. Dissertation, was it? Yes. Um, and if you want to ask Max anything along these lines, you can do it on Facebook message, What's It? Uh, you can email from the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage or you can mail P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. Okay. Now, our word of the week, Max... Spring. Is it really spring? Well, I took a risk. Mm. You know, sometimes it's spring for an hour or two in the mornings and then disappears yes. in the afternoon. You, but yes, that's exactly it, right. It will inevitably happen. Like, we mm. hopefully will still be on air when spring actually happens. And when I was thinking about the, the words that some cultures call it, like frühling or pantom, I looked at the English history of the word spring, which seemed extraordinarily innocent. Oh. Because sometimes during the 1300s, the cold weathers were drawing to close, as they always did. Things began to get a little bit less cold, and people in England started to refer to the change as springing time, mm -hmm. which meant that the branches were springing with little leaves and the plants were springing from the grounds. And so that stayed for a while, but over the hundred years following, it got shortened to springtime, right. the time when the leaves started springing. And then, a hundred years after that, in the 1500s, the second word was dropped, and the simple word spring became the name of the season in the English language. And then People still change... use springtime, though. Hmm? People still use springtime. Oh, yes, but they I think they mean it generally than just the name of the season. Mm. Um, but the um, there was a change in the term we know as spring fever, because... In earlier centuries, spring fever referred to the unpleasant head colds, the snuffling runny noses which tended to strike people during this change in the weather. But over time, spring fever came to indicate not just a cold in the head, but rather a feeling of excitement and vitality, often associated with increased feelings of romance. Oh. So all those pleasant things could be beginning to happen around our country from now onwards. Springy lambs, they would do it too. But they, I mean, you think of spring and it'll hear lamb and it's springing about. Yeah, that's, actually, that's actually quite funny because they are a symbol of spring. Aren't they just? That they do actually spring about. <laughs> okay, now during elections, what does the hustings actually mean? It's a weird word and the, and the history is a little bit complex. I'll try and make it simple. Um, I was asked, where does, what does it mean? Where does it come from? It's a very old English term. Centuries ago, it was borrowed from just over the channel from a Norwegian word, um, bearing in mind that Norway is not very far away from England. And in the Norwegian language, it was based on the word hus, meaning house, plus thing. And thing meant a gathering or assembly. So in English, this became husting, indicating an assembly held by the men who formed the household of a nobleman or king, a leader. Well, it gravitated upwards to being used in London as the name of the highest court. The highest court in London City began using the word husting, and from there, from the 1700s onwards, a husting, a singular husting, was the name, this is the good bit, for the actual platform from which the parliamentary candidates made their speeches to the public. Oh. They stood up on a husting, and that 
travelled around America where they used the word stumping because men stood on tree stumps to make their speeches. Oh. By the 1800s, the word hustings became a plural, hustings, and when it's said as hustings, it has a metaphorical sense of an election campaign in general. Right. So that if the hustings have begun, it means that the electoral machine is enrolling along and the policies, the platforms, the speeches, the whole process are now underway. Ah, I wonder what the, what the Norwegians call it. Oh, well, they meant it as a house. Oh. <laughs> Husting. Yes. Although it's quite possible in Norway that house could mean something like the House of Parliament. Or oh, the, right, right, right. Or the, the House of Windsor, or mm -hmm. not just a building. All right, now, here's a fabulous-sounding word, bamboozle. <laughs> yes. Well, it means, it has several different levels. It means to deceive or get the better of someone by trickery, flattery, or just confusing them. And usually, usually telling people that they mustn't believe what they used to believe, what they were sure of. Now, the word has been in use for 300 years originally. And uh, in early days, it meant to deceive by trickery. And it was perceived as referring to underworld criminals using falsehoods to deceive people. But it widened into more general use. It nowadays doesn't necessarily have criminal association. Um, now, where did it come from? Well, there seems to be an historical connection with the old Scottish word bombays, meaning to confuse. And because of this association with confusion, during the 1800s, it was often used as a term for being drunk. Oh. If a person was bombays, it's a good word, isn't it? Yeah. It meant they were wobbling on their feet a bit. Now, over... Bombays gin. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's spelt with a Y. This, oh. is, this is A Z E. <laughs> okay. Uh, over several hundred years, the world, the word has been in use, but it's acquitted a rather more gentle meaning, so that a person may say they're bamboozled by supermarket advertising or by television news, and that no longer means trickery or drunkenness. It just means the person is perplexed and slightly mystified. Right. Got you. Um, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we're going to be having a look at more of uh, your questions about the English language. Shindig gets a run, not on your Nelly. That's interesting, isn't it? And why is it someone giving you the jip? And we may even get to Winkle Pickers. What a great lineup today, Max. This is good. It's better than usual. Oh. <laughs> the audience, I can't tell you, listeners, he is grinning, grinning, grinning in a sort of evil way. Yeah. The, the Weekend Variety Wireless. Here he is, Max Cryer, and he's addressing some of the questions you have tabled, either through Facebook or the email form. I forward them on to Max. He does the research and comes in and does something called the radio show here about it all. Um, bamboozle, lovely sounding word, but we've moved on to an equally so weird sounding word for a thing, shindig. Shindig is a noisy, lively gathering, and as we know it now, the word first appeared in America in the 1800s, and it is believed to be a combination of an ancient word from Scotland, which was slightly modified first by the Scots and then by the Americans. The word used to be shinty, which seems the to... Game. Shinty, is that a game? Yeah. Well, it's an old Gaelic word, shintag, meaning oh. a leap. Uh, and in Scotland, that word became shinty in common conversation. Um, and it meant a game, like a very lively sort of hockey. It was rough, 
And it often, would you believe it often had a hundred men on each side? Oh, I can see that happening. Yes, in Scotland, no holes were barred. By the 1820s, there was an image of anything noisy and brawling to be compared with a game of shinty or its variation, which slowly became shindy. And it could have stayed like that and sometimes still does. You'll come across a Scots person who remembers it as shinty. If you said kick up a shindy, most people would know that you meant an argument, a protesting clamour. But the slight variation into shindig appears to have come from the influence of the southern parts of USA where a kick in the shins was always referred to not as a shin kick, but as a shin dig. Really? Um, just an odd American usage. So it's not difficult to see the change take place in the g of dig becoming grafted onto the world word shindy. So eventually, the noisy Scottish game, the aggressive shin-kicking schoolboys of the southern states in America, the game amalgamated its name into shindig, meaning an argument, a commotion, or a gathering characterised by a great deal of noise and activity. All right. Put up a hoot nanny. That's another one. Yes. Could we leave it for another week? Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to do that off the top of your head. Hoot nanny. Well, that's, I think that's it, an it, even better sounding word. It, but it gives the impression of social pleasure rather than a shindig, which can be a drunken mess. Oh, right. Okay. It's nice to have these distinctions. <laughs> what an exquisite toolbox the English language is. <laughs> we can pare away very, very fragile little meanings. Okay. Not on your Nelly. Nelly? Well, means not under any circumstances, certainly not. Emphatic no. It's an abbreviation of a Cockney slang item. There are two explanations, one much more widely believed than the other. Mm. Number one, Nelly is short for the name Nelly Duff. And although that word isn't, the word isn't spoken, as is general with Cockney rhyming slam, Cockneys know that Nelly means Nelly Duff, which rhymes with puff, which means breath, which indicates life. So it's a comic way of saying, no, not on your life. There's an alternative oh, version. God heavens, that is just so protracted, isn't it? But that's very normal in, in, in Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah. You have to know the history of the word that's... Nelly Duff, puff, puff... Breathing Breath. life, yes. not on your life. Death, yes. Right. <laughs> so um, there's the very there's a variation. Who is Nelly Duff? There isn't one. Oh. So there's an alternative explanation, which is not so widely accepted, but it means the same thing. Wait for this. You're gonna like this. Not on your Nelly rhymes with smelly, which leads to smelly breath, which indicates life, because everybody has to keep breathing. Or they die. Get the ferret out of the elephant I cage. I tell you what, if you're in the right part of London and the Cockneys are speaking in their language, mm. it's very fluent and very fast, and they have absolutely no trouble in understanding it. There'll be people listening now who are from London who know about Cockney rhyming's thing. It's, it's world famous. Mm, of course it is. I wonder if it's still living. I think so. Um, I hope so. It was omitted, I think, from the script of Pygmalion, which later became My Fair Lady, because she, of course, was a Cockney. But I think because... She wasn't was... a millennial, put it that way. I'm just wondering how it survived. Well, um, the character of Eliza Doodle was written in order to be performed in front of audiences, and it was so all over the world, mm -hmm. and in movies, and in, you know, in huge audiences. And I think... 
George Bernard Shaw deliberately left out anything difficult in the way of understanding a Cockney expression. Oh, well, fair enough. You're not playing it to, to the little Cockney. The nearest she got was when she said, wouldn't it be loverly? Loverly. Yeah. Right. I've grown accustomed to her face. She uh, didn't say that line. No, Rex Harrison <laughs> did. Yes. OK. So did I when I played the role. Did you? <laughs> OK. Um, when somebody's giving you the jip, this is interesting. It's usually spelt G-Y-P, isn't it? Someone's giving you something annoying. Giving me jip. Yeah. Well, it has three meanings. It's a verb and also a noun. Number one, when someone has been deceived about something, they generally say, I've been gypped, meaning I've been got at, cheated, defrauded, swindled. And that is believed to have come from the word gypsy, because gypsies, being constant travellers, had a reputation for getting up to shady doings and then vanishing Uh. overnight, overnight, somewhere else. So that term was in use among country folk over discovering things like a horse dealer discreetly painting brown onto an old horse's grey hair and puffing out its cheeks. So whoever bought the horse would discover tomorrow that they'd been gypped. Oh, it's like that zoo. After the first shower of rain and the the brown hair turned (laughs) grey. Did you see the... Oh, was it real or not? It doesn't matter. Um, This donkey in the zoo, they painted it black and white and said, look at the zebra. Oh, yes. Tried to get away with it. I don't think that would be easy to do. Zebras have a certain arrogance about them. Yeah, but if you've never seen a zebra before and okay. you're a little kid, <laughs> did you see one? Probably do the trick. Did you see a donkey painted like a zebra? No, it was a picture of it in the news. That's not what I said. I saw a picture of a donkey oh, painted see. like a zebra <laughs> in the news. Got it. All right. All right. Now, the horse was painted to cover up its grey hair mm. by the gypsies, and tomorrow they're gone, and the person who bought the horse would discover to have been gypped. Now, explanation number two. There's a version of this when something annoying or painful happens to someone and they say, it's giving me jip. Now, this usually means to some part of the body, which is fluctuating with pain, or when somebody in charge is being bossy and critical about something, or when you're spring cleaning a mattress and giving it, giving the mattress jip, you're beating it hard. Oh. A thorough beating in the air. Now, this use of jip is believed to be a contract version of G-up which you say to horses to get them moving. So when you say G-up, it's being as if you're being prodded like with pain, Uh like a horse being prodded with somebody's heel to get it going faster. Indigestion or whatever is suddenly and temporarily troubling you is giving you G-up. Now, there's a third meaning. It has no connection with the others, but I put it in because it does exist. It's used by some people when they feel queasy, not just pain, but queasy, which is different, and they have... Jippy stomach. Oh. Now, this dates back to the 1800s. It's quite common, actually. Lord Kitchener led the British armies in Egypt, and the soldiers used the word jippy as a slang reference to Egyptian citizens. And then much later, British troops in the North Africa desert campaign suffered ailments in the climate and lifestyle of army military in very foreign climate, which became known as jippy tummy. Right. Now, I've heard people of a certain generation use that term... I think maybe our generation doesn't, but those who went to those wars or who had fathers who went to those wars still say jippy tummy, and it means Egyptian tummy. Right. 
I wonder if it's in the script of Dad's Army. It should be, shouldn't it? I would think that it probably is. Except that the British... Well, no, the British usually can tread very heavily on sort of uh, international jokes. But um, Corporal Jones, he was in the Sudan with Kitchener and fighting the Fuzzy Wuzzies. That's how he found out they don't like it up him. Oh, well, I would think if he was prepared to say fuzzy buzzy in plural, it was in mm. public, he was probably also going to say jippy somewhere along I think so. Now, were we going to have a look Yeah, at... we can go. We've got plenty of time. Winkle Pickers. Oh, wait. Have you finished with Jip? Yes, I finished with Jip. Okay. Um, I was going to look at... Um, we've done hustings. Winkle Pickers. Did we do bamboozle? Yes, yes we've done bamboozle. Let's look at Winkle Pickers. Please. It's a kind of shoe. Well, it's not a kind of shoe. It is... Um, the word is used to describe a kind of shoe, but... It's called a winkle picker because in England there is something called a periwinkle snail, otherwise known quite commonly as winkles. There are people listening to us right now who can remember if they lived in England, uh, winkles, catching winkles Mm -hmm. on the beach. Um, They're a popular seaside snack and they're eaten by using a pin or a pointed object to push in and extract the soft parts out of the coiled shell carefully. Hence the phrase which you've heard, to winkle something out of somebody. Oh. Get it? Yeah. yeah. You sort of have to use a sharp, very slim, sharp yeah. pin, and gradually you'll yeah. get what you needed out of that person. Now, based on that, which, apart from the shoes, we still say when someone doesn't want to have some information or to give some information, we say, I'll winkle it out. Uh, yeah, so yeah. when the shoes were invented with those amazing pointed tips, yeah. they were called winkle pickers because although you couldn't shove one inside a shellfish and get the fish out, it did look like you were going to poke something right. sharp into the... Right. You poked it into the shell and sort of speared the flesh and then grabbed pulled it out. Pointy. 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 Yes. So hence they were... Ah, oh, that is fascinating. I saw it coming as soon as you said... That you winkled, you pick the winkle with your picker. Yes. You winkle it out. Winkle picker. <laughs> it's, yeah. It'd it's be hard put to it do with a shoe, but the idea was there. No idea. It had to do with seafood. Someone tell Gordon Ramsay. I, or Stein, he'd be the one to talk about it. Today is an interesting anniversary. Is it? 202 years ago. 1816, New Zealand's first ever school opened. Oh, heavens. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. I was amazed. It was organised by the missionary Thomas Kendall in a tiny, tiny settlement called Ohihi in Northland, and there were 33 students. Oh, did I say students? I should have said pupils, shouldn't I? Because they were pupils. You're the word guy. Uh, (laughs) Well, actually, there's a change taking place. There are no more pupils anywhere at all. All of the press and um, media always say students. Right. I think they think it sounds flatter. Yeah, they do. Even when they're five years old, they're called students. Now, the youngest of these pupils was seven, and the oldest was 20. And within several months, the roll number had doubled. Now, the Maori pupils were taught the English alphabet and syllables, and the Pakeha children were given instruction in Maori language and grammar. Now, that was 1816. In our time today, throughout New Zealand, there are now 760,000 children attending schools in New Zealand. Oh, that's that's on a good day. It all started 202 years ago with just 33. That, that, That number... 700 and whatever thousand. That's how many are supposed to be in school. Those, those are enrolled. Yes. Some of them are playing hooky. 
that you can't quote because you don't know. That's a, just another word. I'm you, winking. You See, can, that's another one. You can why are guess. you playing? Why do people play hooky of all sorts of things? Of all the things. Okay. Um, just regarding um, how you know, there is this, I think, a general desire not to offend anybody by calling them a pupil because it's, it's student sounds flasher, everyone's a winner. Do you know what happens in football? The football season in England's about to start. They have, they used to have the first division and the second division and the third division and the fourth division and then the league. That makes sense to me. Makes sense to you? Sort of. Hmm. You know what they do now? No. They've gradually changed it because Ooh. there's the Premier League, then there's the Championship, and then there's Division One. So the old third division is Division One. Uh, it sounds good. Is Division One sounding good? Division One sounds flasher than third division, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, of course it does. <laughs> but it's still the third division. Well, I can't... It's like painting stripes on a donkey and saying it's a zebra. Well, I came across something the other day which I didn't understand. I'm hoping nobody asks. But there's a row going on at a certain level between English sports people and America uh -huh. over the use of the words football and soccer. Oh, no. Really? You know about that? No, but who cares? I, I well, a lot of people do care, apparently. Okay, what's the argument? Oh, I don't understand it. Oh. Um, it's soccer. Well, Americans say soccer. Well, because they've already got a game for football, and that's yes, but so do we. Yeah, but each to their own. Not I mean, soccer out. comes from the word association. Yeah, association game, really, isn't football is yeah. a shortened version of it. Yeah. No, I, I skimmed through it and didn't understand it, and I'm hoping nobody asked. Uh, well, they've got a game where big grown men run around hitting each other, chasing a ball. So and do we. Yeah, yeah. We call it football. They call theirs football. People who like football, the soccer game, they call that football. Oh, no, no, there we there's go. been a change in New Zealand. I can remember when rugby was called football. Yes. But no, never, never anymore. It's now called rugby. And it should be called Rosherberry because that's the name of the place it came from. Oh, heavens, really. Rosherberry is the original name of the town. Yes, of people still call rugby football, don't they? Um, I think when people say football, they tend to mean soccer. They don't say soccer anymore. Yeah, maybe a gradual change mm. that way. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps yeah. you're in the middle of a change. It's a pretty powerful institution football the round ball game yes indeed oh. yeah i mean it's particularly in britain well particularly worldwide well more members than the united nations is it more powerful i don't i worked in america a lot and i never heard it mentioned there no if you've gone but, to colombia or brazil or actually anywhere else on the face of the earth and i don't think rugby has a high profile in america no not very really. rare no and yet, what just they... here, really. Just here, some Pacific <laughs> Islands and some traditionalists in Wales. So, and yet what the Americans call football has a huge impact on the public. Mm. On the American ideas. public, but no one else. Oh, on really. the American public, yeah, yes. Yeah. The stadiums have to be seen to be believed. Mm. I mean, they'll take a, a whole town. Yeah. We could go on like this forever, but we can't, Max. We do our best. <laughs> Thank you. If you want to ask Max something, knock yourself out. Just use the email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage or you can uh, message on Facebook and I pass it on. What do you want, Max? Nurse, he's at it again. <laughs>
Off he goes, Max. Thank you. There's a thing called the... This is very much associated with uh, the English language, uh, up Max Creek. You should come back and have a listen to this, so we can have a listen on the radio. Uh, there's a thing called the Plain English Awards. They, uh, it's a New Zealand thing, and we've got all about them on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, um, their Twitter, all, all the different formats. You can nominate good plain English and awful not plain English. Complete failures. Um, and just bull. Just wordy postmodernist nonsense. Uh, the entries are open until the end of August and we'll be following who gets what awards um, in September when the awards are held. Tomorrow we'll be having a chat with someone behind this, Greg Fortain, a former race relations conciliator. I don't know why he's uh, to do, got anything to do with the Plain English Awards, but good on him uh, because I think it's a good thing. Now, someone who was a champion for Plain English and was magnificent at just pointing out utter bull especially in the realm of business jargon, which is a rich vein, you must admit, was Lucy Calloway, Calloway and her little podcast that she did about five minutes of pulling apart business jargon and poking the borax at it. Bless her. She went on to, instead, uh, for free, teach people mathematics as a charity. So good for her, uh, but it means we miss this sort of thing. Here's her roundup. We'll play it, I think, tomorrow night if we have time. But just in case we don't, you got to hear this. Um, her roundup of business jargon rubbish, or flannel as she calls it. I think this one's from 2012. Come back, Lucy. There are so many prizes to award in my latest Golden Flannel Awards that I'm axing my usual preamble and getting straight down to the business of giving out the gongs. The big news is that I've decided to supplement the prizes for Bull with an award for Cock. This stands for Chief Obfuscation Champion and is open to big-name chief executives. When I conceived this award a few months ago, I promised it to Angela Arans for writing in her annual report, In the wholesale channel... Burberry exited doors not aligned with brand status and invested in presentation through both enhanced assortments and dedicated customised real estate in key doors. Now, alas, I'm forced to take it away from her and give it to John Chambers instead. Last month, he sent out an email to Cisco employees beginning team and ending We'll wake up the world and move the planet a little closer to the future. Mr Chambers beats Ms Arends because he has created a concoction of sublime arrogance and cheesiness out of short household words. He is a well-deserving cock. I realise this will be disappointing to the Burberry boss, so I'm putting her in for another new award. The door gong. I was certain she'd win this for her outstanding effort in pretending her company sells doors when really it makes super pricey raincoats. But in the closing days of the year, I found a company called Record, which actually makes folding aluminium doors, but is elected to describe itself as a supplier of entrance solutions. Staying with solutions, the next prize is the Martin Luke's Creovation Cup,
for combining two words to make something less effective than either. This was a crowded field, as there was solutioneering from Myanmar, InnoValue from the Taiwanese government, and sustainability from Atos Origin. All are truly creative, but I'm giving the cup to Momentum UK for claiming that we live in a fidgetal world. From complex words to simple ones comes the preposition award. There are two contenders here. The first was shown to advantage recently in a statement from Lloyd's. We have made substantial progress against our strategic objectives, which suggests the bank is moving in the wrong direction. But the winner is the innocuous word to, as increasingly heard in presentations. I've got some slides to talk to. The unfortunate implication being that the speaker has to talk to the slides because no one else is listening. The next award, most extravagant job title, is always hotly contested. But this year there's a clear winner. Dr. Amantha Imba is head inventiologist at Inventium. Her job description, to turn people into innovation dynamos. Now on to the best euphemism for firing people. Lots of companies sacked people last year by consolidating leadership, but only Citibank deftly managed to hide the fact that it was axing 1,100 people in a press release that talked of optimising the customer footprint across geographies. This makes the old sacking euphemism of right-sizing look rather respectable. Since then, the word right has suffered much wrong, so much so that I'm giving it a special prize. This goes to Oliver Wyman, which in a report on the future of Asian banking came up with not only right spacing, but the downright sinister right culturing. One of my favourite awards is always for the negative dressed up as positive, and this year's prize winner is one of the finest examples I've ever seen. An analyst at Relegare heroically described a big drop in profits at United Spirits thus. Profits de-grew by 23.3%. And finally, the mixed metaphor award. This was overheard in a project management meeting at a big company. You have to appreciate that the milestones we set in these swim lanes provide a roadmap for this flowchart. When we get to the toll gates, we'll assess where you sit in the waterfall. All that now remains is to hand out the overall Golden Flannel Award. The runaway winner is Citigroup, which not only produced the best euphemism, it also wins a prize for jargon that actually clarifies matters. It declared that from now on it would offer client-centric advice, which lets the cat out of the bag that the advice it used to offer was otherwise. 